David Ortiz, The Big Poppy Story, is presented by Sam Adams. You know what? I went to the Samuel Adams factory, and I had the opportunity to taste so many different flavors that they have that really, really, really made me fall in love with their beer because now they came out with some light, which is my favorite flavor. And, uh, man, I'm, you know, it's time to Samuel Adams. <laughs> Sam Adams, fill your glass. The thing is, in baseball, you sign up for this career, but you don't know what it's going to turn down to be. You only have control of one thing, which is put a lot of effort and do what you can do on the field. You got to be a likable person. And if you ain't a likable person... You gotta be extremely badass. Hero is a tricky word to introduce into any conversation, in sports and beyond. Because when you prop someone up as a hero, you almost set yourself up to be disappointed at one point or another. Then again, if a hero can make his or her way through the world, and maintain your faith through ups and downs as someone you decide is worth believing in. Someone who represents possibility. Well then, no one can say they didn't earn it. And by the way, if you're looking for a hero, you're best off not looking in a place where you might expect to find one. It's kind of part of the whole idea of a person coming out of nowhere with no shot, no leg up, no easy road, and becoming part of history forever. I mean, this guy is the greatest postseason player ever. To, one and to hear them down. talk about what David Ortiz meant. The American them. dream is so important for all Dominicans. David Ortiz real? You can't find a more authentic person. Because he did have a chip on his shoulder. David Ortiz, the most important Red Sox of all. I was here watching the whole thing. I saw a black hawk just flying by my house. It was house. amazing. You don't, see, you don't see that every day. This is our fucking city. And nobody got a big day on freedom. My name is David Ortiz. They call me Big Poppy. This is my story. Swing and a drive, keep the right, way back, and this ball is gone! David Ortiz, walk-off home run, this one in the 12th, and the Red Sox beat the Yankees. Of all the moments, that one still stands out, doesn't it? In the unlikeliest of situations, leading the classic underdogs pinned against the wall back into the light. But it turned out just to be the start of a career in which he became one of the best big-at-bat clutch hitters in baseball history, and one of the greatest to ever put on the Red Sox uniform. He's retired a couple of years now, sure, but he still feels a part of the present. The true immortals are like that. And after all he did for the town, the team, and the game, maybe just as amazing is the path he took to get there. To really understand the legend of Big Poppy, then, we have to go back to the very beginning of this story. I believe that most of the successful people in life history, they go from one stream to the other. You barely see people starting from the top. They start from the very bottom because you start appreciating things better. You don't take things for granted. You basically know that to get to that other stream, you got to work extremely hard. And once you get there, you don't let anyone take that away from you. I never really like talking about myself. In everything I try to do, I try to do it for good because I feel so grateful about what God has been able to give me and what I have been able to provide for my family. Because I come from nothing. I come from nothing. I come from whatever you think the word nothing means 
that's where I come from. Santo Domingo is the capital of the Dominican Republic. It's the oldest continuously inhabited European settlement in the Western Hemisphere and the most populous city in the Caribbean. There's been steady economic growth here since David Ortiz grew up, but for him, early life was a time of great difficulty. I was born and raised in the Dominican Republic through a lot of struggle. You know, my dad used to work in an auto park place, and at some point he started traveling out of the city just to uh, sell auto parts to people out of town, which he was a very dangerous job because he had a you know, be driving all over the place in the Dominican in this one car that he had, that it was an old car that anything goes down in it, you know, you, you're expecting the worst. Drive anywhere in the DR and you'll see an unparalleled beauty. But if you're the one behind the wheel, you'd better keep your eyes glued on the road. In 2013, the World Health Organization ranked the country as the deadliest in the world so, David Ortiz had reason to worry about his dad on the road. But it's what he had to do to help make ends meet. Ortiz's mom, Angelo Rosa Arias, pitched in too. She used to go to the island on the Caribbean, Curacao, and Martin, those places. She used to uh, go there, shop, and come back home with clothing and stuff like that to sell to people that work in hotels. It was a lot of work, but it was that was the way for her to make a little bit of money. And also being able to help my dad out with the little bit of money that he would make his job. So a couple of weeks ago, I'm having breakfast with my dad, and we were talking about the way I interact with people. And my dad was like, you got all that from your mom. Your mom, she had that kind of personality that it was no fear. I guess that's where my personality come from, you know, like when I was playing the game, you know, like it was either you or me, but it was, in my mind, it was me. It wasn't you. So I always put up with the challenge. I was always able to not put pressure on myself. And my mom was that kind of person. My mom, she was able to teach my dad how to have that kind of personality because my dad is he's kind of shy you know he's he's not an uh, outspoken person well my name is Américo Enrique Ortiz but everyone knows me as Leo because it was the nickname my parents gave me since I was little David and his mother were like brother and sister he and I were like friends but David and his mother both brother and sister were one of the same but when she had to punish him she did. He was more afraid of her than of me, because I only spoke, but she punished directly. David's mother had to be strict with him and his sister, Albania. Just living in Santo Domingo had its own set of challenges. David grew up in an environment where there were drugs and there were murders. As a matter of fact, his mother witnessed a murder as she was going to the grocery store of a young man, and that deeply affected her. I myself had an incident where I was sitting in a rocking chair outside of a market. Someone placed drugs under the seat. David's mother saw this. She came over to me and she said, why are you letting this happen? I didn't even realize. But we showed them to David and we said, these are illegal. This is something you never want to be involved with. When you grow up in the hood, you know how things go down down there. I used to live in a place named Guale in the Dominican Republic. It's a really, really bad neighborhood. Guale was a place that uh, you can ask to any Dominican about that place, and they would be like, oh, damn. I lived there until I was nine, and one day I was on my way to the bodega to buy something because my mom was cooking. And I just saw a guy stab another one and just kill him. I experienced shooting, I experienced guys running into my house, being chased by the police, drug dealing, all kinds of stuff. I experienced all that and trust me, you know, two things happen when you experience that kind of type of life. You either get stronger or you fell for. 
My name is Juno Diaz. I am a writer. True, Juno Diaz is a writer, as well as a creative writing professor at MIT. But he's also very modest. Diaz is the closest thing the literary world has to a rock star. After emigrating from the Dominican Republic to New Jersey at six years old, Juno struggled mightily to learn English. He lost himself in books and eventually started writing them. He's written several novels, one of which, his very first, The Brief, Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, earned him a Pulitzer Prize for fiction in 2008. The book explores a family's relocation from the DR to New Jersey, themes of racial and national identity, and a seminal question for immigrants. Where is home? Oh, and one more thing that might not surprise you. Juno Diaz is a baseball fan, too. Yeah, the Dominican Republic, you know, we're talking about a country that is starkly divided between the haves and have-nots. If you're poor in Santo Domingo, you are desperately poor, which explains why so many folks are trying to get the hell out. And if you're poor, there's also almost no real opportunities, which, of course, reinforces that. And all of these things come together when we're thinking about the sort of opportunities that baseball represent in the Dominican Republic. Baseball staged almost this incredible uh, takeover of Dominican popular culture and all the factors that played into it. I think what's important to understand is the Dominican Republic has always been, you know, at the crossroads of empire. The fact that baseball, the great American sport, starts to appear in the Dominican Republic during these turbulent times with empires, no accident, and was occupied by the Americans at the start of the 20th century and during an occupation, of course, you know, there's lots of messed up things that go on, but there's also cultural borrowing. And so we see the expansion of baseball under the Americans. And then, of course, the Dominican Republic uh, endures a 31-year dictatorship under Trujillo. And as a nation-building instrument, baseball, like popular music, was very useful for the Trujillo regime. Baseball is central in ways that few things are in many communities. And certainly, it's at the heart of masculine Dominican identity. And some communities, of course, and some families, kind of baseball takes on an almost a religious pitch. Listen, my dad wake up every day in the morning, and he do the same thing. He pray for his family. He thanks God for everything. And he's a person that have this incredible faith on God and, and he don't follow any religion he just that's how he is when my mom got pregnant on me my dad and my mom they wasn't married yet they got married after my dad had to give up on his baseball career to work to get a job so he can be a man of the family you know so everything basically kind of stopped since I was little I played baseball I've always loved baseball. At 17 years old, I started practicing professional baseball here in Santo Domingo. In 1975, when David was born, I put a hold to baseball to dedicate myself to being a father. I gave up my dream when my wife was pregnant with David. My mom was already like two months pregnant and he went to church, banged his knee in front of Virgin Mary. And he which his first baby is a boy, and he began to be a baseball player. Professional baseball in the Dominican Republic dates back to 1907 with the Lice Tigers of the Dominican Winter League. Since 1907, Los Tigres have won 22 league championships. Their rivals, Los Leones del Escogido, the Lions of the Chosen One, were founded in 1921. They've won 17 league championships since then, and the rivalry fuels baseball fever in Santo Domingo. Leo Ortiz, and later his son David, both played for Escogido. In our country, baseball is in the blood. Every young man has it in the blood. But my son David, at five or six years old, he already had a huge inclination towards basketball. Basketball was my thing. Growing up, there was a basketball court everywhere. And 
it was kind of boring sitting down to watch a baseball game back then, I would say, because as a kid, I always have a hard time sitting down to watch a baseball game on TV. To me, it was like zero entertaining. But I would sit down to watch a basketball game all day. I said, okay, I have to put a stop to this. I would walk out of the house and be like, I'm going to play basketball. And he's like, mm-mm, going to be a baseball player. That's what you got to do. In 1984, I started wearing my baseball uniform again to motivate David because I saw that he needed inspiration. I put on my old uniform and I started taking him around to all of the games because I knew that he would be great. I had that faith. It was very important to me and I made it so that he would love baseball. And he wasn't father and son. He became like two friends with a similar passion. And you know, children emulate their parents, and I knew this. When I got my first glove, let me tell you what my dad did. My dad went out there to get me a glove for a left-hander, and he didn't find any. He couldn't find a, a left-hander glove at all in the whole country. So he bought me a right-handed glove, and I used to put it on my right hand to feel with I was so confused because I was like, how am I going to catch the ball and throw it at the same time? He just want to give me a glove, but I figured it out. So suddenly, Ortiz was playing anywhere and anytime he could. And in the DR, it's never difficult to get your buddies together to play some Sandlot baseball. Equipment, though, that's a different story. <laughs> you know that we had three Kings Day in the Dominican, and uh, that was when... Your sisters and my friend's sisters used to get the doll. And we would get baseball, you know. But you know how it goes down when it comes down to play street ball, you know. At some point, you'll be hitting the ball where nobody can find it. And all of a sudden, you're out of baseball. So one of the boys came out with the greatest idea of just getting a doll head and just shave the hair off of it. And all of a sudden, you had a baseball and we were like, hmm. Everybody took a doll head from their sisters. And when my turn comes up, man, I was so scared. But my sister have a few dolls until we got Kaplan Street with doll head. So, man, I'm telling you, I got in some serious trouble. When I got back to the house and my sister was crying because her doll head was gone. And my mom was mad, but my dad was laughing. <laughs> <laughs> because he know how things go down when you come down to play baseball, you know. So I was more scared of mom than dad because I know that he was going to understand, but mom wouldn't play that, you know. And But I did it again. <laughs> I did it again. And then another idea comes up, and it was getting uh, socks and uh, just loaded it with plastics and stuff like that. You. The thing is that at some point it became to be a ball, so then all of a sudden my dad had a pair of socks missing. <laughs> yeah. He was keeping socks all of a sudden, one here, one there, one here, one there. And that was when he was like, hold on. <laughs> that was when they hit the ceiling. That was when I got into some real trouble. <laughs> David Ortiz's father does not speak English to this day speaks very little English. I mean, I don't even think he says hello. Michael Holly is a longtime sports media personality in Boston and a former writer for the Boston Globe. He was also the co-writer of David Ortiz's autobiography called Poppy, My Story. David Ortiz's father told him, you need to take English classes because I think you're going to be a Major League Baseball player and that's going to be very important for you. Still learning the language, David Ortiz was signed as a first baseman by the Seattle Mariners Dominican affiliate in 1992, just after his 17th birthday. He was paid $10,000, more money than his family could make in an entire year. He came home and laid all of the money on his bed, taking just enough for himself to buy a radio and giving the rest to his family for necessities. The journey had begun. By 1994, David Ortiz had gone from playing baseball in the streets to holding a plane ticket for his very first trip to the United States. He was headed to play rookie ball in the minors for the Seattle Mariners in Peoria, Arizona, 
where he'd earn $118 every two weeks and play in 105 degree heat. Performance on the field wasn't an issue for Ortiz, but adjusting to life off the field definitely was. Good thing he'd had those English lessons. So he goes to Arizona. First time he's on a plane in his life, uh, he goes from the Dominican Republic to Miami, Miami to Dallas, Dallas to Phoenix. And he's playing minor league baseball and his Spanish speaking teammates gravitated toward him. He knew very little English, but they didn't know any. So they just relied on him to lead them places. And he had one of his teammates who spoke no English, but he was dating a girl who did. And he thought the girl was fine. So Ortiz felt for him. So he said, I'm going to hook this up. So I'm going to go on dates with you guys. So Ortiz, Ortiz would go on dates with his teammate who spoke Spanish and his girlfriend who spoke English, and they would just go back and forth. Hey, he says uh, he's really having a good time. What do you say? Uh, he says, this is good. We had one of my boys talking to a Coke machine one time. That was one of the funniest thing ever. And I mean, he was putting money into it. And at some point, when he have like a dime left that he had to put in, we saw the machine that say dime. And he was like, what the hell is going on? And one of the guys popped out of nowhere. It was like, the machine wants you to talk to it. <laughs> he was like, what are you talking about? Don't you see that dime, D-I-M-E, in Spanish is dime. Like, tell me. So when he saw the machine that say dime, we were like, you need to get closer to the machine and tell him, give me a Coca-Cola. Or he started talking to the machine, bro. Give me a Coca-Cola. Dame Coca-Cola. But you're not saying it loud enough. Dame Coca-Cola. Oh, my God, man. He spent like half an hour on that. And then one of the coaches just walked by and he just saw that and he was just like crying in the ground laughing. Oh, my God, man. I spent like three days laughing. My ass hurt from laughing. Going to McDonald's. You don't know the language, but you want a chicken sandwich. You have no idea how many guys were acting like a chicken in front of the the people who, who sell them McDonald's. I want a chicken sandwich, but you don't know how to say chicken, so now you got to act like a chicken. Those are the experiences that you got to live through just because you don't know the language, you don't know the culture, you don't know nothing about it. Author Juno Diaz. The key hardships of immigration is language acquisition. Learning languages is difficult. English is particularly difficult. And uh, certainly when you're attempting to excel at a sport at the level at which David Ortiz was excelling, believe me, he had a lot of other things on his plate. And so I cannot imagine trying to learn language under the conditions he learned it, the kinds of pressures that you were under. You know, he kind of clocked a remarkable achievement of being able to learn English, learn it well, learn it in a way that he expresses himself beautifully at such a late age. I am not certain that I would have been able to do the same. They just threw them out here, and they let the players translate for each other, or they let the coach translate for a player. And the Latino players were very upset about this. It was like, well, wait a minute, why are we second class? Because we're still cheap talent. Howard Bryant is the author of several books about baseball, and he's a senior writer for ESPN.com and ESPN the magazine. They had to figure it out on their own. They didn't get the Japanese treatment where you post $60 million and you got to pay the team another 60 and you're going to do everything you can to make sure that investment works. Not so the case with Latino players. With Latino players, they got drafted. They got signed in huge numbers. They got thrown into these little podunk towns in, in the minor leagues and around America. And they essentially had to figure it out on their own. We went to a place where it was in the middle of nowhere. Peoria, Arizona, where it wasn't much going on. They put all of us in a hotel. <laughs> I remember we almost burned a hotel one time trying to cook because we don't make that much money. And going to McDonald's to buy a meal back then, it cost you five bucks. So you can really afford it to spend that much money on a meal, you know. So I know how to cook and some of the guys know how to cook. So we went to a supermarket and we spent like $20 on buying the stove and pan where you can cook, plates, all kinds of stuff, and buying food, you know? So we almost burned the hotel. <laughs> the carpet got caught on fire a little bit. We were scared, but those are the things that you do to survive. It's like going camping. That's exactly how I describe rookie ball. 
it was like going camping. You go out there with a whole bunch of friends, and it's a Survivor Series. If learning English wasn't difficult enough, Ortiz was also still learning some of the basics of the game. In fact, when he first got to Arizona, he asked his batting coach why a 300 average was good. His coach worked with him, and his second season, he hit 332. That's when he got promoted to the Mariners' single-A farm team in 1996. This time, he earned 400 a week, enough to afford a two-bedroom apartment that he'd share with four other Dominican teammates, this time in Grand Chute, Wisconsin. His first welcome to the team was to shovel the snow off the field when he got there. Wisconsin offered a lot of firsts for David Ortiz. The manager pulled the Latinos and the brothers into a room. We were like six or seven. And he went like, don't go around here on your own. And me, that was like, what the fuck are you talking about? And he was like, well, we are in a white town. And just for being black or Latino or having dark skin can get you in trouble. And I'm 19 years old. I never heard of it before. I never thought that because of my skin color, I can get in trouble. That was like walking into a whole new, different level of life, because I never heard of it. The first time I ever heard about it was when I came into this country. I never experienced or heard anything like that back home. Let me tell you, there is a big, big, big social, cultural payout for folks not to talk about race. Therefore, a lot of Dominicans, not all, but a lot of Dominicans are pretty weak on talking openly about race. Their muscles about what it means to be a person of African descent are not as strong. And this is why you have again and again and again this narrative of Dominicans who didn't see themselves as people of African descent because the country makes it easy for you not to think explicitly along those lines, even though the country is completely organized along those lines. And then, you know, Dominicans will leave and suddenly become aware of all sorts of messed up shit, both in their past life and in their present life. You know, it's not uncommon to hear the narrative of a Dominican who leaves Santo Domingo and suddenly awakens to the reality of blackness and white supremacy, a reality that was present all along while they were home, but that was so discouraged, that was so, in many ways, kind of uh, repressed, that it was a lot easier at home not to think about it, to ignore it. You know, the Dominican Republic never had a civil rights movement, never had a moment where folks began to think about the oppressions and the inequalities of kind of a racial system. The average training in the Dominican Republic is to report that race doesn't exist, period. This is the default position of Dominicans. There is no racism. We didn't see it. And of course, you know, anyone who makes even the most cursory examination of Dominican political and social life knows that that is profoundly untrue. David Ortiz, The Big Poppy Story. It's important to protect your home with a home security system. But how many home security companies are actually thinking, how can we protect your home and your privacy? That's why I love SimpliSafe. SimpliSafe has a camera that you can control from your phone, but they want to protect your home and your privacy. So they came up with this brilliant idea, a privacy shutter for their camera. SimpliSafe wanted you to be able to hear the shutter click so you know it's close. And they needed to work for the entire lifespan of the system. I'm a person that I travel a lot. I take my family on vacation a lot. So I definitely need something to give me security when I'm not at home. And not only when I'm not at home, when I'm at home and I wanna be peaceful, I wanna be sleeping safe without worry about anything. So Simple Safe give me the opportunity to be safe for sure. Check out Simply Safe today at simplysafe.com slash poppy. That's simplysafe.com slash poppy. To learn more about Simply Safe today, simplysafe.com slash poppy. Back in Wisconsin, David Ortiz was just looking to have fun. Well, it was a nightclub named The Fire Alarm, and it was ladies' night. So it was $3 to get in and then all you can drink. Tiffany Brick was a girl from Kokana, Wisconsin, population about 16,000, 95% of whom are white and less than 1% are black. 
She'd never been on a plane either. But that was about all she had in common with David Ortiz. He was there with his teammates and they were having a really good time. And I was there with one of my best friends. And we had seen some other friends from school and, and we were just having a great time. And David and I, we were introduced and, and we had some conversations. And then he just kind of like moved in on the dance floor, like just real confidently. And I was like, okay, you know, like, this is cool. It was a confidence without arrogance, which, you know, I was really impressed with. <laughs> he was wearing an orange vest no t-shirt under it. And then he had long jean shorts. Yeah. And sneakers. <laughs> That's a lie. <laughs> I don't really remember. That's what you say to make me look bad. But I wasn't all pimped up like in today's day. <laughs> That's all I can tell you. <laughs> it wasn't unattractive in Wisconsin, I have to say. It was kind of, I guess, a little adventurous. But like immediately, I was really taken back by his approach to talking to me he had this incredible confidence but he also had this really sweet and humble side at the same time which usually don't go hand in hand and you know we just really connected immediately it was undeniable and and his famous line of course was do you have a boyfriend and I said no I don't and he responded with well now you do you know at some point I remember the regular season was over we walk into the playoff, and all of a sudden, I'm staying at her house. Her mom is cooking for me. You know, like, I n never experienced anything related to uh, uh, races. You know, my wife, she's white. She's coming from a white family. And this family, without even knowing me, embraced me since day one. Start dating, falling in love, things work out. I remember uh, she had a nephew at the time. He was, like, three years old, and he asked me, why are you so dark? <laughs> that was the only racist comment that I ever had while I played out there. I think if I had even thought about all of it for a moment, it might have seemed like it didn't make sense, but I, I don't think I even gave it a thought. I was very aware that we grew up very differently. You know, he grew up with a lot of different circumstances than I did, but it was really obvious immediately that we had the same core beliefs the same morals and just how to treat people and, and, and the way we are with family as well. Family, for both of us, is the most important thing. We have way more in common than any differences. It was nothing but love in between the two of us. But uh, reality is that uh, we have a lot of back and forth because we have two different cultures. You're trying to bring together two different cultures, and sometimes it's more complicated than what people think it is. Like, I remember at the very beginning, when we started living together and this and that, she saw how I take care of my family back home, and it was some questions. Why are you sending money back home? Why you got to pay for your dad bill or your sister consistent on a daily basis? Like, I'm like, hey, look, in the black family, in the Spanish family, that's how it worked. You had the opportunity to probably make a little bit extra money than what you spend every day, so you got the opportunity to save. That's not the life that you live in the other side. You got a lot of people with problems around you, so you don't have no time to save money. I'm not going to save money while my dad or my mom or my sister are hungry over there, you know, just because I, I want to have a great future. David finished the 1996 season as one of the top players in the single-A Midwest League, batting 322 with 34 doubles and 18 home runs. It was enough for other teams to start noticing him, and on August 29th, Seattle made a trade with the Minnesota Twins, with the Twins sending David Hollins, a former All-Star, to Seattle for a player to be named later. David Ortiz became that player, and when he showed up to Twin Spring Training in Florida the next year, he made an impression right away. Hi, my name is Doug Mikavich. I played in the Major Leagues from 1998 to 2009. I mean, I can remember David coming to Big League Camp, and he had, like, what seemed like a Yugo as a rental car. And, like, you saw this ginormous guy in this tiny little car. And the, the horn was, like, real high-pitched. It was like, ee-ee. 
And every time he pulled in the parking lot, he honked the horn. And was, well, the joke was like, in order for David to get in, he had to roll both windows down manually. And he had his left arm out the left door, and his right arm was out the passenger side. The car was so small. And every time he got ready to go out, every time he got ready to go out of the parking lot, he would rev up the engine and like lean back and like look like, yeah, we rolling. There's so many like minor league stories about the game. I remember like David was the first guy in our group that would like have a bad night at the plate. He'd go 0 for 5 with like three strikeouts and two pop-ups. And David would just walk on the bus and just like strut. And he'd be like, it's okay. He's like, I feel sorry for that mother tomorrow because I'm messing somebody up. And sure enough, David would go out and hit two home runs the next day to the point where like they would have a bad night. And like even guys on the other team are like, man, I feel sorry for our starter tomorrow. I'm like, yeah, he's going to kill y'all. There's so many, like, he was the world's worst card player. We could have taken his entire salary in a year. Like, we played Bure in all those games. He would stay in with the worst hand. Like, I honestly backed out of the game because I honestly felt guilty taking money from him at the time because he was so bad. He was so bad. Like, I remember, like, he'd get up and go to the bathroom, and they would, <laughs> they would put the cards to where his hand was so bad just to see if he would stay with it. And he would stay with it. We all knew what he had. And I'm like, you guys are like, this is so wrong on so many levels. And they'd be laughing and he would never get it. And I'm like, you guys are assholes, man. Cause like, he's going to kill one of us. And like, we finally told him like, look, man, like he went to the bathroom and we, we kind of did this, but like, why, like, why would you stay with that? And he never got mad. He just laughed it off. Like, thankfully that goes back to like being a good teammate. Like it's almost like God knew he was such a bad poker player. He made him hit 500 home runs because he was such a bad player. So he wouldn't run out of money. It was unbelievable. After winning World Series titles in 1987 and 1991, the Twins were in rebuilding mode by 1997. That year, they had no real power hitters, with Matt Lawton and Marty Cordova leading the team with just 14 and 15 home runs, respectively. Ortiz, meanwhile, had blistered his way through high single-A ball in Fort Myers, Florida, to double-A ball in New Britain, Connecticut, to triple-A in Salt Lake City, Utah. And then he got the big call that September. At 21 years old, just three years after his first plane ride out of the DR, Ortiz was a major leaguer. I think Minnesota, once I got there, they have a lot of expectation, big expectation from me. Because baseball was so different back then. They want me to do things basically on my own. Now you see how organization take the players under their wing and they basically teach the player how to do things so they get what they expect from that player you know in Minnesota I don't think I ever had that so being a young kid and and learning about the process because being in the minor league is not even close to when you get to the big league things are totally different you know and I think Minnesota, they give up on the potential that I have too early. Doug Mankiewicz earned the starting job at first base in 1998 over Ortiz, but their experiences on the young team were very similar. For him and I, we had so many talks because we went through kind of the same but different things that the Twins wanted us to be. I always felt like the Twins wanted David to be me and me to be David. And it was like, they wanted me to hit more home runs and they wanted David to play better defense. And like, David was probably my biggest backer as the type of hitter I could be. He always had my back. He always was the first person to be like, no, Doug, you can hit. And I was always the biggest backer in David as defense because I saw what David did and I could see how he, his hands were fine, but they just put that stamp on him and he couldn't play defense. I faced an injury that cost me like three months. And I think that was the breaking point for them to start giving up on me. Because I remember that happens. I got back and my hands wasn't like the strongest I expected to be. And it was like a month and a half left in the season. And I wasn't the guy that I was before I got injured. So what you do as an organization, you know that this guy has potential. So during the off season, you try to get him back to that level. I never heard from them. And all of a sudden, I show up in a spring training and they ship me to the minor league. He was devastated. He told me he was finished with baseball. And I said to him, no, no, we are going to go there. And I told you that this is not going to be that simple. He was very discouraged. Actually, when we were driving there, 
I drove because David was so upset that he was shaking. I blamed myself for the situation that we were going through at that moment. And I said to him, look, in this situation, I am the guilty one because I insisted that you play ball. I did not leave you at school to become a lawyer or anything like that. Look now how we are suffering here. That's why I'm the guilty one. Now, I want you to please me and go to AAA. Because if you do not go to AAA, I will feel very sad. And he insisted that he was not going to keep playing. I told him, let's eat something. After we eat, let's think. Then we will decide. He couldn't eat. The next morning he said, Daddy, I'm not going to play. We are going to Santo Domingo. We left the hotel that morning and I said, let's get breakfast. Let's talk about this. Let's just go there and if we have to leave, we'll leave. But let's go there first. He was very negative because he didn't feel he should have been demoted. But I kept insisting that he go. He decided to go at the last minute. That day, he hit three home runs and a double. When he did that, I told him, I'm going to Santo Domingo. I already know that this is not your league. You will be back in the big leagues. But it didn't happen as quickly as the Ortizes may have expected. They forget about me down there for the whole year. So basically, for me to get back to the big league, it wasn't about my potential. It was about if the manager liked me or not. Ortiz spent almost the entire 1999 season in the minors. He was a late call-up again in September, but he'd only get 20 at-bats. And though he made the big club again in 2000, it wasn't until June that he started to see regular action as a designated hitter. But he felt like his skill set was being limited by how he was being told to hit. You know, I want you to try to hit the ball over the shortstop head. I mean, yes, there's nothing wrong with that, but I'm a power hitter. I'm not thinking about that shit when I'm on the plate. I'm thinking about putting a good swing into the ball and let the ball go to wherever it got to go, but I'm not thinking about, oh, I'm just going to try to hit the ball over the shortstop. You know what I'm saying? Who, who the fuck does that? It was a freaking roller coaster. you know? I mean, you don't know if you were going to be playing. All of a sudden, you are in the dollhouse without even knowing what the fuck you did. He don't even have to tell you. You can see it. The guy was a douchebag. That's the way I feel about Tom Kelly. And I'm not talking about myself only. I'm talking about a lot of guys that I saw them going through that organization that he would have given a hard time just because he was the man. I think I speak for almost that whole group. Like, we hit and played to please him instead of trying to be successful. And I think there's something to that. We knew, like, we never had the freedom if we swung and missed that he would back us. I came up as an other way type hitter, but I knew, like, I had to hit this ball the other way and almost sacrifice an out to show him I'm staying on the ball to where I could get my other three at back. I think that's how a lot of us took it. And it finally got to the point where I was like, I know in 2001, I think for both of us, it was just like, you know what? The hell with it. If I'm going down, I'm going down my way. And I think we finally said the hell with it. Like, if we do what we're supposed to do and what we're capable of doing, he won't say anything. And eventually it got to that point. And then it just stuck with David because – I felt David's frustration because all they talked about they, when we were coming up was that we haven't had a power hitter since Kent Herbeck. And no disrespect to Herbeck, but I think he only hit over 25 home runs once. And they built him up to be this 40 home run guy every year. I'm like, he wasn't. He was a great player, but he wasn't a 40 home run guy. And I think for all of us in David's defense, and David included, we're always like, well, shit, he's sitting right here. You just, you're not giving the freedom to let it go. Peter Gammons is one of the most revered baseball writers and analysts of all time. He's been covering the sport for the Boston Globe, Sports Illustrated, ESPN, and the MLB Network for over 40 years. I'm still surprised to this point in time that the Minnesota Twins didn't really understand. I can remember one time David Ortiz was a young player, probably 99 or 2000, he hit a ball that was fair over the right field foul pole in Fenway Park. The umpire called it foul. David dropped his bat. And there was a, a little different culture with the Twins. And it was like, well, that's tough to live with. Well, it's not any more than the bat flips from Cubans are tough to live with. That's the way they play. The Twins were more of skate your lane type of team. David could be colorful. It's fine. 
the whole cultural conversion can be a very difficult process. I think the understanding and appreciation of where players from the Dominican, what they came from, it was the total misunderstanding of the Dominican culture. Baseball makes you adapt to it. Here's Howard Bryant. And they want you to conform and they want you to be what the game wants you to be. They think that any sort of style, any sort of flavor, any sort of individuality is disrespecting the game. And you'll either get yelled at by your coaches or a pitcher will drill you for it, as we've seen. And as we know that that's part of the issue. If you're of a certain age, you remember the big fuss that everybody made that Ken Griffey Jr. had the gall to take batting practice with his hat on backwards. And this was also happening at the same time when American sports was becoming more and more and more video-based with ESPN and CNNSI and, and highlights and all of this stuff. And the players identified to that. They want to have fun. They like seeing themselves on SportsCenter. They don't want to get hit in the ribs just because they showed a little bit of flavor after hitting a home run. And take that into Minnesota. TK was that guy. He was a hard ass. He was a, you know, fundamentals guy. And he was definitely that sort of, you know, the Tom Kelly way sort of controlled the culture there that you probably didn't feel like you could be yourself and show a little bit of style. Ortiz's troubles continued through the 2001 season in Minnesota when he appeared in only 89 games. He was 25 years old, and by then, he and Tiffany had had the first two of their three children. His career had yet to take the form he'd always visualized. Frustrated, he returned to the Dominican Republic like he did every offseason to play winter ball with Los Leones del Escogido. Winter ball was a time to get together with his compadres. Some were scratching and clawing to make it to the big leagues, a far cry from the likes of Pedro Martinez, the Boston Red Sox pitcher already a legend with Cy Young awards and a pitching triple crown. Pedro, still in the prime of his career, was an inspiration to all Dominican players, especially Ortiz, even if he played for arch-rival Los Tigres del Licey. Well, Pedro is before me. So I got to know Pedro training in the Dominican Republic during the off-season. He used to come down there to train, and me as a young kid coming up, you know, I used to watch him, and that's how I got to meet him at the very beginning. I was, say... 19, 20, yeah, around there. I was on my way out to the big league. We all understand our backgrounds, so we really look out for each other, regardless of what organization you are. We're always rooting for the next guy. And I'm not telling you we don't have a little back and forth between players, but at the end of the day, Dominicans are Dominicans, and we protect each other, and we look out for each other, and we root for each other. We fight and win a ball sometimes. We get into bench brawling and stuff like that. Then we go for dinner. <laughs> then we go for dinner. That's, 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 that's baseball stuff. But it was always a blast to see David, you know, dressing up like a boy from the hood and the bling bling <laughs> and the music loud. It was, I, I was always looking forward to that. And he was always laughing, always happy, always had the hip hop on and, and this and that. Yeah. But, um, I used to train. I was already a big league player, established, yeah. and David was uh, on his way up. Pedro is the whole talk back home. When you mention Pedro Martinez back home, it's like everything froze. It's like the trainer stopped. Hold on. Oh, Pedro, yeah, what happened? Like, somebody say in Dominican that Pedro is sick with cold and shit. I mean, everything has stopped. So, in our career as a player, me coming up, who do you think I want to be like? This gentleman right here. A lot of us don't stop to think about it, but I think Dominican Republic and, and the history of the game that goes way back, almost from when the Americans started playing games, we're almost as old as baseball is in America. Pound per pound, you cut the United States to the size of the Dominican Republic, and we got you by 90%. David Ortiz, The Big Poppy Story. David Ortiz, The Big Poppy Story, is presented by Sam Adams. When it's time to spend time with somebody else, your family or friends, Sam Adams is stuck in my bar at my house. Oh, man, barbecue, I mean, hanging out with the family, watch games. I know New England most of the time is cold, but whenever it get hot, you know, it's time to Sam Adams. 
Sam Adams. Fill your glass. For any Dominican pro, winter ball is a time to be back home with family. This was especially true for David Ortiz. By then, his parents had divorced, and this was a chance for him to spend some extra time with his mom. Me and my sister are the only two kids that she have, and my sister was always with her. You know what I'm saying? My sister lived with my mom. I was always traveling. I was always out of the house. So when I come home, my mom want to make sure that I was all taken care of. On New Year's Eve, David went to his mother's house. As usual, she was cooking up a storm for he and his sister. After the meal, he decided to go upstairs to take a nap. He noticed that in the room, the closet was empty, except for a Randy Moss Vikings jersey he'd gotten the year before. I was at my mom's house, and uh, that jersey was hanging in my closet. It was autographed by him and everything. And being at my mother's house that night, I look at this closet where I used to put my clothes at, and all I saw was that jersey. Then I even told my sister, man, I can't believe that jersey is still alive. The next afternoon, New Year's Day, 2002, David was with his father, Leo. I was at my house with my dad, then uh, like around 5 p.m., I decided to bring my dad back to his house in my car. We were together and he wasn't his normal happy self. He said he was feeling down. He was going to drop me off at home. But on our way to my place, that's when we started getting the calls. My son dropped me off at home at the door. And I noticed that I have received four calls. We received a phone call from my sister's boyfriend. They were driving on a highway when they were driving by the accident that happens, and he basically don't want to tell me. When I picked up, I had an instant, a bad feeling myself. And I told my son, I'm worried. I think there was an accident. And I think your mom is in the accident. Let's drive to where your mother is. My son kept asking me, what's going on? Is my mother okay? He said, daddy, do not tell me mommy's dead in that accident. Me and my dad, we just start driving. And I just kept telling him to drive. I could see that he could not even see the traffic lights. He was just driving through them. He did not see anything. When we got to the scene, he gets out, two feet away from his mother. He looks down and he says, It's mom. It's mommy, papi. And she's dead. And he looks at me and he says to me, What now, daddy? What now? The driver of her cab had survived the accident, but Angelo Rosa Arias did not. She was 46 years old. David and his father followed the ambulance to the hospital. Once you die, they put you in this one room, La Morgue. That's where they bring the body at, and then as a family member, you got to go and recognize the person that you are looking for. And uh, me and my dad, we got there, and they was telling us, walk in and try to recognize uh, who she was. And, and my dad didn't want me to look at her face because she was very uh, damaged. I basically stepped at the door. It was a lot of different bodies there from people that just had died. But my mom was laying on the right side of it. I, all I saw was the jersey, the Randy Moss. I went crazy. I mean, seriously, just, you know, when you see your mom laying in and you know that it's, it's dead and you're not going to be able to have moments with her like you used to, you know. My son has great valor and resiliency, more than normal. But the condition that he was, when he looked at his mother that day and saw that she was dead, I had never seen him like that. And every time that I think of that day, it just fills me with sadness. My heart was broken for him. I know anyone in that position would have been crushed at such a significant loss, but... 
I'd literally never seen anyone as close with their mom as David was. He didn't waste a second talking about how amazing she was. He didn't waste a second showing her how amazing she was to him. And I've also never seen such clear respect for a parent from an adult, too, because she would still tell him things like, I'm not really comfortable with you going out right now. And him being a full-grown adult, he would still listen to her. It was just the most beautiful, unconditional love I think I'd really ever seen up close from a mother and a son. So I knew that impact was going to be something that there was no words for. I told my son, you cry when you need to cry. You feel the pain that you need to feel. But he had the resolve, and he kept on in his career. Less than two months later, Ortiz went back to Fort Myers, Florida, for twin spring training prior to the start of the 2002 season. It was a ritual his mother had always been part of. She'd drive him to the airport and the DR to fly back to the States, and she'd always come to Florida to be with her son on March 4th, her birthday. David and his teammates would have a cake for her, and there'd be a small party. But on March 4th, 2002, she wasn't there. We're so close at that point. You know, we've been through hell and back together. Being with David that night and coming back, and then it was the first time tragedy really hit us, like, together. And it was something that, that group, it didn't matter who it was, but because it was David, and David would give us the shirt off his back for any one of us. We just felt like one of our brothers, you know, like we, we felt like we lost our mother too, because we knew how much David's mom meant to him. And we never really spoke about it. We just knew we had to be there for him. And it was a tough spring, but it couldn't come fast enough because we could all get together in the clubhouse. And, you know, we did make a point to be like, hey, don't let him be alone. Like, don't let him be alone. Like, make sure we're always checking up on him because, you know, I mean, he's over here. He's in the States. Most of his family's still over there. You know, he's got Tiffany, and that's it. And, like, we need to make sure that we are 100% making sure that he's okay. And, and to his credit, I mean, to handle it the way he handled it, we knew how much he was tore up. But he never lost that smile. He never lost that kidding around. Every time he bounced back, he became stronger and stronger. It was almost like he took a deep breath and was like, I know she's on my shoulder. And my mom wouldn't want me to worry about the stuff I'm worried about. Ortiz finished the 2002 season, his best so far in the majors with a 272 batting average, a 500 slugging average, 75 RBIs, and 20 home runs. And he did it in just a little over 400 at-bats for the season. For context, just a few seasons later, he'd get 601 at-bats. It's not hard to imagine what he could have done with more playing time. But of those 412 at-bats, one had a more lasting effect than any other. Deep to right field! Ortiz hits one into the upper deck! But it wasn't just the home run, or the fact that it was off Boston's superstar, Pedro Martinez. Martinez giving up his 10th home run this year. It was what David Ortiz did as he crossed home plate for all the crowd to see. He raised his arms and pointed up to the sky with both hands. It was a display that had become a ritual that season and one that would become a part of him for the rest of his career. Everything started in my first spring training after she passed away. My first game in spring training, I hit two homers. And I remember after I hit my first homer, I keep looking up and it was like I was seeing her, you know? And I basically realized that I feel like she was asking me for something, you know? And my best answer was like pointing at her like, that's for you. I feel like I got that connection with my mom, even if she's not alive. I feel like she protect me, she take care of me. I'm a big piece of what she was and I came from her, you know, and everything reflect on her, with my personality, how friendly I am. I'm part of her. I was mama baby boy, you know what I'm saying? And we're talking about a person that brings people together. We talk about a person who it doesn't matter who you were, or where you come from, 
she was always there for you you know what i'm saying so look i have this wonderful relationship with my mom you know i know it has been 17 years already but it's it never gets old you know like i was just back home not too long ago and i went to her grave and i used to go there and cried a lot and you know my day was like basically shut down but my mom was a happy person that's all she preached about when she was alive and now when i go you know i don't really cry anymore i try not to but i only go through the memories the good times or the good things that we share you know i would love to have my mom right here and and be able to give her the moon she deserves it you know what i'm saying but that's life and that's how things goes and what made me happy about life is that I share the little good moments that I have in life at the beginning of my career. My mom was there with me, you know what I'm saying? So that gave me peace. The truth is that David Ortiz was always going to find peace after his mom died. It's just the kind of guy he is, who he's always been. And it might be the most lasting gift his mother gave him. But heading back to Minnesota in the spring of 2002, that gift was going to be tested as fiercely as ever. The thing is, here's the reason why I was so mad at the twins. To find out how things went from bad to worse with the twins and what it meant for the rest of David Ortiz's career and his life, be sure to download and listen to episode two of David Ortiz, The Big Poppy Story. We're just getting started. <laughs>